section nine of beacon lights of history volume nine european leaders by john lord this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by k hand czar nicholas part two but before considering the war itself we must glance at the preliminaries the movements which took place making war inevitable and which furnished the pretext for disturbing the peace of europe first must be mentioned the contest for the possession of the sacred shrines in the holy land pilgrimages to these shrines took place long before palestine fell into the hands of the mohammedans it was one of the passions of the middle ages and it was respected even by the turks who willingly entered into the feelings of the christians coming to kneel at jerusalem many sacred objects of reverence if not idolatry were guarded by christian monks who were permitted by the government to cherish them in their convents but the greek and the latin convents allowed at jerusalem by the turkish government equally aspired to the guardianship of the holy sepulchre and other sacred shrines in jerusalem it rested with the turkish government to determine which of the rival churches greek or latin should have the control of the shrines and it was a subject of perpetual controversy russia of course defending the claims of the greek convents who at this time had long been the appointed guardians and france now taking up those of the latin although russia was the more earnest in the matter as holding a right already allowed the new president of the french republic in eighteen fifty one on the lookout for subjects of controversy with russia had directed his ambassador at constantinople to demand from the port some almost forgotten grants made to the latin church two or three hundred years before this demand which the sultan dared not refuse was followed by the turks annulling certain privileges which had long been enjoyed by the greek convents and thus the ancient dispute was reopened the greek church throughout russia was driven almost to frenzy by this act of the turkish government the czar nicholas himself a zealot in religion was indignant and furious but the situation gave him a pretext for insults and threats that would necessarily lead to war which he desired as eagerly as louis napoleon the port embarrassed and wishing for peace leaned for advice on the english ambassador who as has been said promised the mediation of england then followed a series of angry negotiations and pressure made by russia and france alternately on the sultan in reference to the guardianship of the shrines as to who should possess the key of the chief door of the holy sepulchre at jerusalem and of the church at bethlehem greek or latin monks as the pressure made by france was the most potent the czar in his rage ordered one of his corps d'armee to advance to the frontiers of the danubian provinces and another corps to hold itself in readiness altogether a force of one hundred and forty four thousand men the world saw two great nations quarrelling about a key to the door of a church in palestine the statesmen saw on the one hand the haughty ambition of nicholas seeking pretense for a war which might open to him the gates of constantinople and on the other hand the schemes of the french emperor for the tenure president elected in eighteen fifty one had in just one year got himself elected emperor to disturb the peace of europe which might end in establishing more securely his own usurpation the warlike attitude of russia in eighteen fifty three alarmed england who was not prepared to go to war as has been said 
Menchnikoff was no match in the arts of diplomacy for Lord Stratford de Redcliffe, and an angry and lively war of diplomatic notes passed between them. The Tsar discovered that the English ambassador had more influence with the port than Menchikoff, and became intensely angry. Lord Stratford ferreted out the schemes of the Tsar in regard to the Russian protectorate of the Greek Church, which was one of his most cherished plans, and bent every energy to defeat it. He did not care about the quarrels of the Greek and Latin monks for the guardianship of the sacred shrines, but he did object to the meditated protectorate of the Tsar over the Greek subjects of Turkey, which, if successful, would endanger the independence of the Sultan, so necessary for the peace of Europe. All the despatches from St. Petersburg breathed impatience and wrath, and Menshikov found himself in great difficulties. The Russian ambassador even found means to have the advantage of a private audience with the Sultan, without the knowledge of the Grand Vizier, but the Sultan, though courteous, remained firm. This ended the mission of the Russian ambassador, foiled and baffled at every turn, while his imperial master, towering into passion, lost all the reputation he had gained during his reign for justice and moderation. Within three days of the departure of Prince Menshikov from Constantinople, England and France began to concert measures together for armed resistance to Russia, should war actually break out, which seemed inevitable, for the Tsar was filled with rage, and this in spite of the fact that within two weeks the Sultan yielded the point as to the privileges of Greek subjects in his empire. But beyond that he stood firm, and appealed to England and France. The Tsar now meditated the occupation of the Danubian principalities, in order to enable his armies to march to Constantinople. But Austria and Prussia would not consent to this, and the Tsar found himself opposed virtually by all Europe. He still labored under the delusion that England would hold aloof, knowing the peace policy of the English government under the leadership of Lord Aberdeen. Under this delusion, and boiling over with anger, he suddenly, without taking counsel of his ministers or of any living soul, touched a bell in his palace. The officer in attendance received an order for the army to cross the Pruth. On the 2nd of July, 1853, Russia invaded the principalities. On the following day, a manifesto was read in her churches that the Tsar made war on Turkey in defense of the Greek religion and all the fanatical zeal of the Russians was at once excited to go where the Tsar might send them in behalf of their faith. Nothing could be more popular than such a war. But the hostile attitude taken by all Europe on the invasion of the principalities, and by Austria in particular, was too great an obstacle for even the Tsar of all the Russias to disregard, especially when he learned that the fleets of france and england were ordered to the dardanelles and that his fleet would be pent up in an inland basin of the black sea it became necessary for russia to renew negotiations at vienna a note had been framed between four of the great powers by which it was clear that they would all unite in resisting the czar if he did not withdraw his armies from the principalities the port promptly determined on war supported by the advice of a great council attended by one hundred and seventy-two of the foremost men of the empire and fifteen days were given to russia to withdraw her troops from the principalities at the expiration of that term the troops not being withdrawn on october fifth war was declared by turkey the war on the part of turkey was defensive necessary and popular the religious sentiment of the whole nation was appealed to, and not in vain. 
it is difficult for any nation to carry on a great war unless it is supported by the people in turkey and throughout the scattered dominions of the sultan religion and patriotism and warlike ardor combined to make men arise by their own free will and endure fatigue danger hunger and privation for their country and their faith the public dangers were great for russia was at the height of her power and prestige and the czar was known to have a determined will not to be bent by difficulties which were not insurmountable meanwhile the preachers of the orthodox greek faith were not behind the mohammedans in rousing the martial and religious spirit of nearly one hundred millions of the subjects of the russian autocrat in his proclamation the czar urged inviolable guarantees in favor of the sacred rights of the orthodox church and pretended as is usual with all parties in going to war that he was challenged to the fight and that his cause was just he then invoked the aid of almighty power it was a rather queer thing for a warlike sovereign entering upon an aggressive war to gratify ambition to quote the words of david in thee o lord have i trusted let me not be confounded for ever urged on and goaded by the french emperor impatient of delay and obtuse to all further negotiations for peace which lord aberdeen still hoped to secure the british government at last gave orders for its fleet to proceed to constantinople the czar so long the ally of england was grieved and indignant at what appeared to him to be a breach of treaties and an affront to him personally and determined on vengeance he ordered his fleet at sebastopol to attack a turkish fleet anchored near sinope which was done on november thirtieth eighteen fifty three except a single steamer every one of the turkish vessels was destroyed and four thousand turks were killed the anger of both the french and english people was now fairly roused by this disaster and lord aberdeen found himself powerless to resist the public clamor for war lord palmerston the most popular and powerful minister that england had resigned his seat in the cabinet and openly sided with the favorite cause lord aberdeen was compelled now to let matters take their course and the english fleet was ordered to the black sea but war was not yet declared by the western powers since there still remained some hopes of a peaceful settlement meanwhile prussia and austria united in a league offensive and defensive to expel the russians from the danubian provinces which filled the mind of nicholas with more grief than anger for he had counted on the neutrality of Austria and Prussia, as he had on the neutrality of England. It was his misfortune to believe what he wished, rather than face facts. On the 27th of March, 1854, however, after a winter of diplomacy and military threatenings and movements, which affected nothing like a settlement, France and England declared war against Russia. On the 11th of April, the Tsar issued his warlike manifesto, and Europe blazed with preparations for one of the most needless and wicked contests in modern times. All parties were to blame, but on Russia the greatest odium rests for disturbing the peace of Europe, although the Tsar at the outset had no idea of fighting the Western powers. In a technical point of view, the blame of beginning the dispute which led to the Crimean War rests with France for she opened and renewed the question of the guardianship of the sacred shrines which had long been under the protection of the greek church and it was the intrigues of louis napoleon which entangled england the latter country was also to blame for her jealousy of russian encroachments fearing that they would gradually extend to english possessions in the east 
had nicholas known the true state of english public opinion he might have refrained from actual hostilities but he was misled by the fact that lord aberdeen had given assurances of a peace policy although france and england entered upon the war only with the intention at first of protecting turkey and were mere allies for that purpose yet these two powers soon bore the brunt of the contest which really became a strife between russia on the one side and england and france on the other moreover instead of merely defending turkey against russia the allied powers assumed the offensive and thus took the responsibility for all the disastrous consequences of the war the command of the english army had been entrusted to lord raglan once known as lord fitzroy somerset who lost an arm at the battle of waterloo while on the staff of wellington a wise and experienced commander but too old for such service as was now expected of him in an untried field of warfare besides it was a long time since he had seen active service when appointed to the command he was sixty-six years old from eighteen twenty seven to eighteen fifty two he was military secretary at the horse guards the english war office where he was made master general of the ordnance and soon after became a full general he was taciturn but accessible and had the power of attracting everybody to him averse to all show and parade with an uncommon power for writing both english and french an accomplished man from whom much was expected the command of the french forces was given to marshal saint arnaud a bold gay reckless enterprising man who had distinguished himself in algeria as much for his indifference to human life as for his administrative talents ruthless but not bloodthirsty he was only colonel when fleury the arch-conspirator and friend of louis napoleon was sent to algeria to find some officer of ability who could be bribed to join in the meditated coup d'etat saint arnaud listened to his proposals and was promised the post of minister of war which would place the army under his control for all commanders would receive orders from him he was brought to paris and made minister of war with a view to the great plot of the second of december and later was created a marshal of france his poor health the result of his excesses made him unfit to be entrusted with the forces for the invasion of the crimea but his military reputation was better than his moral and in spite of his unfitness the emperor desirous still further to reward his partisan services put him in command of the french crimean forces the first military operations took place on the danube the russians then occupied the danubian principalities and had undertaken the siege of silistria which was gallantly defended by the turks before the allied french and english armies could advance to its relief but it was not till the middle of may that the allied armies were in full force and took up their position at varna nicholas was now obliged to yield he could not afford to go to war with prussia austria france england and turkey together it had become impossible for him to invade european turkey by the accustomed route so under pressure of their assembling forces he withdrew his troops from the danubian provinces which removed all cause of hostilities from prussia and austria these two great powers now left france and england to support all the burdens of the war if prussia and austria had not withdrawn from the alliance the crimean war would not have taken place for russia would have made peace with turkey it was on the second of august eighteen fifty four that the russians recrossed the pruth and the austrians took possession of the principalities england might now have withdrawn from the contest but for her alliance with france an entangling alliance indeed 
but lord palmerston seeing that war was inevitable withdrew his resignation and the british cabinet became a unit supported by the nation lord aberdeen still continued to be premier but palmerston was now the leading spirit and all eyes turned to him the english people who had forgotten what war was upheld the government and indeed goaded it on to war the one man who did not drift was the secretary for foreign affairs lord palmerston who went steadily ahead and gained his object a check upon russia's power in the east this statesman was a man of great abilities with a strong desire for power under the guise of levity and good nature he was far-reaching bold and of concentrated energy but his real character was not fully comprehended until the crimean war although he was conspicuous in politics for forty years his frank utterances his off-hand manner his ready banter and his joyous eyes captivated everybody and veiled his stern purposes he was distrusted at st petersburg because of his alliance with louis napoleon his hatred of the bourbons and his masking the warlike tendency of the government which he was soon to lead for lord aberdeen was not the man to conduct a war with russia at this point as stated above the war might have terminated for the russians had abandoned the principalities but at home the english had been roused by louis napoleon's friends and by the course of events to a fighting temper and the french emperor's interests would not let him withdraw while in the field neither the turkish nor french nor english troops were to be contented with less than the invasion of the russian territories turkey was now in no danger of invasion by the russians for they had been recalled from the principalities and the fleets of england and france controlled the black sea from defensive measures they turned to offensive the months of july and august were calamitous to the allied armies at varna not from battles but from pestilence which was fearful on the twenty sixth of august it was determined to re-embark the decimated troops sail for the crimea and land at some place near sebastopol the capture of this fortress was now the objective point of the war on the thirteenth of september the fleets anchored in the eupatoria bay on the west coast of the crimean peninsula and the disembarkation of the troops took place without hindrance from the russians who had taken up a strong position on the banks of the alma which was apparently impregnable there the russians on their own soil and in their entrenched camp wisely awaited the advance of their foes on the way to sebastopol the splendid seaport fortress and arsenal at the extreme southwestern point of the crimea there were now upon the coasts of the crimea some thirty-seven thousand french and turks with sixty-eight pieces of artillery all under the orders of marshal st arnaud and some twenty-seven thousand english with sixty guns altogether about sixty-four thousand men and one hundred and twenty-eight guns it was intended that the fleets should follow the march of the armies in order to furnish the necessary supplies the march was perilous without a base of supplies on the coast itself and without a definite knowledge of the number or resources of the enemy it required a high order of military genius to surmount the difficulties and keep up the spirits of the troops the french advanced in a line on the coast nearest the sea the english took up their line of march towards the south on the left farther in the interior the french were protected by the fleets on the one hand and by the english on the other the english therefore were exposed to the greater danger having their entire left flank open to the enemy's fire the ground over which the western armies marched was an undulating steppe 
they marched in closely massed columns and they marched in weariness and silence for they had not recovered from the fatal pestilence at varna the men were weak and suffered greatly from thirst at length they came to the alma river where the russians were entrenched on the left bank the allies were of course compelled to cross the river under the fire of the enemy's batteries and then attack their fortified positions and drive the russians from their posts all this was done successfully the battle of the alma was gained by the invaders but only with great losses prince Menchnikov, who commanded the russians beheld with astonishment the defeat of the troops he had posted in positions believed to be secure from capture by assault the genius of lord ragland of st arnaud of general bosquet of sir colin campbell of ken robert of sir de lacy evans of sir george brown had carried the day both sides fought with equal bravery but science was on the side of the allies in the battle sir colin campbell greatly distinguished himself leading a highland brigade also general codrington who stormed the great redoubt which was supposed to be impregnable this probably decided the battle the details of which it is not my object to present its great peculiarity was that the russians fought in solid column and the allies in extended lines after the day was won lord raglan pressed st arnaud to the pursuit of the enemy but the french general was weakened by illness and his energies failed had lord raglan's counsels been followed the future disasters of the allied armies might have been averted the battle was fought on the twentieth of september but the allied armies halted on the alma until the twenty-third instead of pushing on directly to sebastopol twenty-five miles to the south this long halt was owing to st arnaud who felt it was necessary to embark the wounded on the ships before encountering new dangers this refusal of the french commander to advance directly to the attack of the forts on the north of sebastopol was unfortunate for there would have been but slight resistance the main body of the russians having withdrawn to the south of the city all this necessitated a flank movement of the allies which was long and tedious eastward across the north side of sebastopol to the south of it where the russians were entrenched they crossed the belbic a small river without serious obstruction and arrived in sight of sebastopol which they were not to enter that autumn as they had confidently expected the russian to whom the stubborn defense of sebastopol was indebted more than to any other man lieutenant colonel Tuttleben, had thoroughly and rapidly fortified the city on the north after the battle of alma End of section 9